Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 29. These are the words of God. When the Lord thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee, whither thou goest to possess them, and thou succeedest them, and dwellest in their land, take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them, after that they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God, for every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters have burnt in the fire to their gods. What thing soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Tonight I want to bring a little bit of a special message. And it's one that I have contemplated and one that I have prayed over and have decided would be best for our congregation given where we are and uh, the time and season that we find ourselves in. We are now on the other side of a time of the year in which virtually every church in our country is engaged in a full swing celebration of the Christmas holiday. And some have no doubt noticed that as a church we have pretty much abstained from those seasonal festivities. We did not have a skit or a play or a nativity or a cantata or uh, anything like that. And I was tempted to simply carry on as usual and to not uh, make mention of, of the day. However, to avoid confusion, I thought that it might be helpful to address this touchy issue. And... I'm going to, with the help of the Lord tonight, speak to you briefly concerning holy days and corporate worship. Holy days and corporate worship. I believe that the comments that I will uh, have for you will be in line with what our particular Baptist forefathers have believed for centuries. But more importantly, my goal tonight is above all else to be biblical. To be biblical. Before I begin, though, I need to preface my remarks with a few disclaimers and a few requests. So let me give them to you. Let me ask this of you and treat me, bear with me uh, for the next 45 minutes or so. The first disclaimer is this. All of my comments tonight in this message are relegated to corporate worship. Okay, I am speaking of the church assembling together for the express directive of worshiping God, the express purpose of worshiping God. It is not my intent tonight to address anything that you may or may not do in your personal family life. So if you're sitting there thinking, well, is the pastor talking about the tree in my living room? I can assure you I am not. That is not the the intent or the subject tonight. The second disclaimer is this. This has nothing to do with being a Scrooge. This is not a Grinch factor that has nothing to do with it. Uh, This is not humbugging on Christmas, uh, feasting and celebrating and spending time with family, even giving gifts. These are all good and commendable things that Christians should participate in, uh, whether on December 25th or otherwise. 
the third disclaimer is this. We love, value, and prize the doctrine of the Incarnation. We hold the Incarnation to be a, an essential truth of the Christian faith. One cannot be a Christian if he does not affirm that the God-man, Christ Jesus, was born of a virgin and in His one body coexisted a nature human and a nature divine, yet without any mixture. And we believe that this truth is essential to the gospel with which we preach. And so, this is not to devalue the Incarnation. The fourth disclaimer is this. We love, value, and prize the doctrine of sola scriptura. The scriptures alone are sufficient to instruct us in everything we need to properly worship God. We believe that man needs nothing apart from his Bible to know everything that God requires of him, especially in the matters of worship. So keep that in mind as we are looking into some of these things tonight. And now some requests, some things that I will ask of you. The first request is this. Do not approach this subject or this issue differently than you do any other. Do not base your convictions on sentimentality or memory or emotion. But let the scriptures be your rule and be your authority. I know the men and women in this room well enough to know that all of us would affirm the doctrine of sola scriptura. We would all affirm the authority of the scriptures. And so do not treat this issue any differently. Use the same a scriptural guide and the same basis of your authoritative stance on the Word of God to lead you in this matter as well. Then another request is, is this. I would ask you to humbly consider these things, especially if you have never studied what the Scriptures teach on this issue. I find that the issue of holy days and corporate worship, especially Christmas, most Christians have never sat down and honestly asked the question, what does the Bible teach? We often just assume, because of the culture around us and the presuppositions that we are given, uh, that there is a particular way which must be the only way, and if you do it differently, there's something wrong with you. But I would ask you to just consider these things, and lastly, be very charitable towards your brothers and sisters, especially with those with whom you disagree. I believe when it comes to this issue, there are certain principles which we can objectively say the Bible teaches, there's no questions, there's no way around them, all of us must bow to this, but then in these types of issues there are uh, subsidiary questions and corollary positions with which I think Christians can have honest disagreement even within the same congregation. And we need to be sensitive that uh, sometimes what might be a personal conviction for me is not necessarily an objective teaching of the Scripture that I have authority to mandate all to follow. And so we want to be careful with that. In fact, it's one of the reasons why I waited until a couple of Lord's Days after this holiday to even address this issue because I, I wanted to be sensitive. I did not want to, um, to in any way offend someone, especially someone who does want to humbly consider these things but has just uh, never even considered this issue and no one has ever brought this up. They've never heard teaching on this. Well, I believe that it's very foolish of 
someone in a role of teaching and preaching to uh, to be browbeating and and use the pulpit as a as a platform to espouse what might be his convictions and what might be plain to him but others have not yet had opportunity to consider so those are just some uh, introductory remarks, some disclaimers, and some requests. And I hope that as I give these to you, you also understand the spirit with which I aim to present the truth to you tonight. We're going to answer three questions tonight. Uh, usually I have some type of outline. Consider these three questions the outline tonight as we go through uh, this conversation. The three questions are this. Number one, what is the biblical view of holy days and corporate worship? What does the Bible teach about holy days and corporate worship? Secondly, what are the historical origins and opinions of man-made holy days, specifically the Christmas holiday? And thirdly, how did the church of today arrive at its position on man-made holy days? How did we get to where we are today? So, let's jump right into this very first question. What is the biblical view of holy days and corporate worship? And let me begin by explaining those terms. Holy days, it's quite self-evident, but holy days are, are simply days that have been set aside as specifically religious days uh, ordained for the worship of God. It's where we get our word holiday from. Uh, now we have a more colloquial definition of holiday. Anytime your boss lets you off work, we just call it a holiday. But in the theological sense of the word, a day like Memorial Day or Veterans Day would not be a holy day. It's a, it's a federal holiday, right? Uh, but there's no religious connotation to such days. So when, we, when we're talking about holy days tonight, we are talking about days that are set aside specifically for the worship of God. They are consecrated for the worship of God. And then what do we mean by corporate worship? Again, this is a theological term. Corporate worship is the set-aside, the set-apart assembly of the church together for the explicit purpose of worshiping God. And that is important to understand uh, because... Every time the church assembles is not necessarily for corporate worship. For instance, if we all are to go out and have a fellowship meal together somewhere in town, that is not a, a meeting of corporate worship, even though you know all of the church members might be present at that meeting. And so, what are the biblical views of holy days and corporate worship? How do the two relate to one another? And to answer this question, we must first answer the question... What is our standard of worship? What is our standard of worship? How do we determine what we are to do and what we are not to do in worship? Obviously, you know that there are certain things that we do every single Lord's Day. Every time we assemble together, we do certain things. Well, why those things and not something else? Did we just haphazardly say, well, I think this might be a good idea or this might be a good idea, and so we just threw together a worship service. Uh, why do we organize it the way that we do? Why do we emphasize certain things? Why do we exclude certain things? There are some things that are very commonly practiced in many churches today that you will find absent here at Christ Fellowship. So how do we determine our, our standard of worship? Well, historically, there are two answers 
that Christians have given down through the years to determine how worship is to be conducted. There are two answers throughout history. Uh, the first answer is what is called the normative principle of worship. The normative principle of worship. And you can derive from that word normative just normal. Just normal principle of worship. The normative principle of worship. The normative principle of worship teaches that anything not expressly prohibited in the scriptures is permissible. And you might say, well, that, that sounds reasonable. I mean, if the Bible doesn't say we can't do it, then what gives, man? You know, that, and that was the position of the Roman Catholic Church, and it was later followed by the Lutherans and the Anglicans. And it was really the predominant view during the Dark Ages until the Reformation. And that was the normative principle of worship. If it's not express, expressly prohibited, if the Bible does not say in black and white letters we can't do it, then we can do it. That's the first answer. Well, the second answer is something called the regulative principle of worship, or I really I prefer the term the regulative principle of the church, but I'll use the regulative principle of worship tonight for simplicity's sake. And this answer is, is, is different than the normative principle. See, in the 1500s, there was a revival of the doctrine of sola scriptura, that the scriptures alone are sufficient and authoritative. And this was applied to methods of worship. It was applied to methods of worship. Calvinistic and Reformed and particular Baptist churches recovered this doctrine of the regulative principle. And basically, uh, the way that they came to this conclusion was they said, well, if the scriptures are our sole authority, they are also our sole authority in the worship of God. And I've taught on the regulative principle before, so I'm not going to spend much time on it, but essentially the regulative principle says this, we are only permitted to worship God in ways that He has explicitly commanded in His Word and the just and necessary consequences thereof. So do you see the difference between normative and regulative? Normative says, well, if it's not prohibited, then we can do it. But the regulative principle, based upon the truth of sola scriptura, says... If it is not commanded, positively instituted, then we do not have the authority to do it. And I believe we find that all throughout Scripture. We find it practiced in the New Testament, and we find it in our text tonight. Look at verse 32 of Deuteronomy 12. Whatsoever I command you, so there it is right there, only what is commanded, observe to do it. And then, here's the kicker. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. So the regulative principle says that we are to do what God commands. We are not to add to what God commands. And we are not to subtract from what God commands. Now, some have said that this principle is very restrictive. They've said that this principle is very harsh. But I believe, brothers and sisters, that the regulative principle of worship... It's actually a very gracious principle that God has given us because it frees us from idolatry and man-pleasing. See, God knows that our hearts are idol factories. And so He has given us in His Word very simple instructions for worship. Just do what is written. We do not have to be in bondage wondering if God is pleased with our worship. 
We do not have to be in bondage wondering if, if what we are doing in our corporate worship services is acceptable and approved of God. If we are doing what God has commanded, all of what God has commanded, and nothing that God hasn't commanded, we can be resting assured that God is pleased with our worship. And we don't have to wonder or worry about pleasing men about attracting carnal men with carnal means to a carnal service. No, we can just do what God has said, and God has given us this great freedom in His Word. We do not have to be in bondage to our own feelings. I know that some of you have come from various church backgrounds where worship was measured by the feelings produced in the congregation. And I will be honest with you, there are times in which I experience a worship service and I might not be in tears. I might not be tore up inside. I might not feel very much, but I can rest assured that God's approval of me is not based on my feelings, but it's based on whether or not I was obedient to do what he said in the a spirit of truth. In the spirit of truth. So that is the principle with which we follow here at Christ Fellowship. We follow the regulative principle of worship. We only do that in our worship services which we can find express warrant for in the Bible. And if we cannot find express warrant for it in our worship services, we do not do it in our worship services. Notice I'm emphasizing corporate worship and worship services. I do not believe that the regulative principle applies to all Christians uh, at all times of their lives. I know there is a, a, a gentleman uh, who I was listening to on this topic and he was very decidedly against the regulative principle and he said that it was just an old stuffy rule that legalists like to follow and he was kind of mockingly saying that, well, I don't find an express verse in the Bible that tells me to brush my teeth in the morning so I guess I won't brush my teeth in the morning and that is uh, just a complete misunderstanding of what the regulative principle of worship teaches. There is a special set of guiding principles that apply to God's people when we assemble together as His church that might not apply other places. And anyone with just a cursory reading and understanding of the New Testament will see that abundantly clear. So that is our principle, the regulative principle. Now, the question then becomes, how does this apply to holy days? How does it apply to holy days? Well, it should be fairly obvious if we affirm that we cannot worship God in any way that He has not commanded, then we must also affirm that we do not have the right to appoint any day or season as holy which God has not thusly deemed in His Word. Which God has not thusly deemed in His Word. And if you don't get anything else, get this. The reason that we do not celebrate Christmas as a church or any other man-made holy day for that matter, as a part of our worship, is simply because God has not told us to do so. It really is that simple. Nowhere in the Bible has God told us to celebrate the birth of Christ as a part of our worship, as a, as a separate ecclesiastical event. Nowhere in the Bible do we see him commending churches that had special services to celebrate the Incarnation. Nowhere in the Bible do we see him condemning churches that do not have special services to commemorate the Incarnation. In fact, nowhere in the Bible does God even tell us when Jesus was born. Again, I think God knows that our hearts are idol factories. 
I think it's the same reason why, though men are still looking for that piece of the ark on Mount Ararat somewhere, they're not going to find it. And men are looking for uh, an original copy of the manuscript somewhere in a hidden cave somewhere, but I don't believe they're going to find it. And even the most ardent proponent of the Christmas festivities must admit these plain facts. May we participate in these festivities in our own personal families? Well, that is for you to decide. But you must be honest with the fact that nowhere in the Bible are we even indirectly or kind of, sort of, or maybe taught or commanded to observe these things in the worship of the church. And so to say that, well, uh, God does not tell us to do it, but I just really think it's a good idea. I mean, what could be wrong? We love the incarnation. It's a great time of the year. Everybody's happy. Let's do it. Well, brother and sister, we, we must understand that God does not need our good ideas. He has given us the Bible. And that's, that's why I'm asking you to approach this issue no differently than you approach other issues. And I, really and truly, I believe that this is the central argument. We can talk about the roots of Christmas, whether or not they're pagan, and we can consider its attachments to Romanism and uh, all of those different things. But those things notwithstanding, we still cannot get around the fact that there is absolutely no mention of Christmas in all 31,102 verses, 1,189 chapters of the Bible. And just so you don't think I have it out for Christmas... Please understand that the regulative principle would apply to any other holiday not commanded to be observed by the Word of God. You know, I, I love Thanksgiving. It, it really is my favorite holiday. I think Thanksgiving is actually the most Christian holiday that we have. I love it. I mean, it commemorates brave men and women who sailed the seas, who came to North America, who, who wanted to set up a city upon a hill, uh, perhaps a little misguided, and uh, later the particular Baptist that came over would straighten them out in their, their doctrine of the church. But nevertheless, I love Thanksgiving, love the festivities, love the feasting. But brothers and sisters, we're not going to have a play and dress up like pilgrims uh, and talk about the Mayflower on the Lord's Day as part of our corporate worship to worship God. And we're not going to do that with any of the others, 4th of July or New Year's or any of the others. Why? Because we hate all holidays and we're stuffy and we're Ebenezer Scrooge, Bahumbug. No. Because God has not told us to do so. It is that simple. It is that simple. So, if Christmas and Thanksgiving and, and Easter, if they're not biblical holy days, if they're instituted by man, well, then the question becomes, do we have any holy days? Do Christians have holy days? Has God given us a holy day in which we are to rest from labor and worship God according to the way He has commanded us in the Bible? And whereas you'll find no mention of Christmas in the Bible, you will find, rooted in the moral law of God, demonstrated from Genesis to Revelation, the people of God hallowing one day in seven, consecrating it as a Sabbath unto the Lord and worshiping Him on that holy day. 
In the Old Testament, it was the seventh day to commemorate the work of creation. But here in the New Covenant, it has now become the first day to commemorate the greater and exceedingly glorious work of the new creation in Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot down John 20, 19, Acts 20 and verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and Revelation 1 and verse 10, which are all instances of New Testament Christians assembling on this holy day, the Lord's day, to worship God as He has commanded. We read about the transition in Colossians chapter number 2. That is what we were reading about there in Colossians chapter 2. You see, the Sabbath is a creation ordinance instituted in the Garden of Eden. One day in seven, not just one day in seven, but a particular day. And in the Old Covenant, it was that seventh day. And that was the Sabbath of the Old Testament people. Now, with the addition of the ceremonial law, we had additional Sabbath days. We had Sabbath years. We had years of Jubilee. We had extra appointed feasts. And these were divinely appointed. However, what Paul is saying in the New Covenant is that all of those ceremonial Sabbath days were wiped away. That's why he says, don't let anyone judge you in relation to meats or Sabbath days. Now, some erroneously interpret Colossians 2 to refer to the New Testament Lord's Day. And they will say, see, don't judge me according to Sabbath days. Um, I don't have to hallow any day to the Lord. I don't have to keep the first day of the week as a Sabbath unto the Lord my God because Paul says, don't judge me according to Sabbath days. The problem with that is he's not talking about the Sabbath day. He's talking about lowercase as Sabbath days, plural. He's talking about all of the ceremonial Sabbath days of the Old Covenant. And by the way, that jives with the context as he's talking about me and circumcision and other aspects of the ceremonial law, they have abolished with the uh, inauguration of the new covenant. But brothers and sisters, what has remained and what will forever remain is God's moral law, the abiding validity of God's moral law, which we interpret via the lens of the new covenant and we understand that God has left us the Lord's day. Do we have any holy days in the New Covenant? Absolutely. The Lord's Day, the first day of the week. 52 of them a year. How's that for a liturgical calendar? The first four commandments teach us that God reserves the right to dictate who we worship, how we worship, and when we worship. Which Days and times are especially appointed for worship. Now, we see Christians in the New Testament meeting at other times on other days. We see that in the Bible. So we obviously are not opposed to midweek prayer meetings and other special days. We, we see that demonstrated in the Word of God. But there is only one day that is especially sanctified and consecrated above all others. Furthermore, God also instructs us on the methods that we are to employ when we come together for corporate worship. Remember I asked at the onset, how do we determine what parts of worship we are going to include in our worship services? Well, God tells us. And concerts, skits, costumes, candles, nativity scenes, those things did not make the cut. 
Those things are not part of what God has commanded us to do in His Word. In fact, I think we could make the case that at least one of those things is directly forbidden in Scripture if we rightly understand the second commandment. So what then is the means of our worship? What then is the means of our worship? Well, we find in the New Testament that God has instituted congregational singing, Scripture reading, prayer, preaching, and the administration of the sacraments or the ordinances. Those are the regular means of God's grace for us to observe as a church. Those are the things that should constitute our worship services. Those are the things that we include. Why? Because that's what God has told us to include. And we know that He is pleased with those things. See, the funny thing is, it's kind of ironic. In most Calvinistic churches, solid churches... I can't speak for all of them, but in, in solid churches, if the pastor announced that the Sunday sermon would be replaced with a children's skit on just a, any old Sunday, the congregation would have a cow. They would demand, this cannot be. The Bible says we are to be attentive to the reading and preaching of the Word of God. We cannot forego the Sunday sermon for a children's skit. But then a holy day comes along. And we approach that Sunday or that Lord's Day differently than we would any other. And all I'm saying to you is this. I do not find in the Bible any warrant to depart from God-ordained means of worship on His holy days. And I think what is more detrimental and what really is something that displeases the Lord that if we're honest, we must admit that most professing Christians will celebrate man-made holy days and practically ignore God's holy day. See, I doubt that very many Christians were at work on Christmas Day. I doubt that very many were running errands as usual and taking care of family business as usual they were not at the supermarket. In fact, the supermarket was closed. They were at home. They were with their families. They were resting. They were feasting. Perhaps they even sat around the fire and read the incarnation story. Those are all very good things. Wonderfully commendable things. But if we hallow a man-made holy day but then do not hallow the Lord's day. I do not believe that we are pleasing God because those same Christians who hallowed Christmas and, and, and the, the man-made holy day, as soon as the Lord's day came along, perhaps they went to church, but then they went about fulfilling all of the secular obligations that they did not get done Monday through Saturday on God's holy day. And of course, I'm generalizing here, and I'm not speaking of anyone specifically, but I am speaking of what happens in Christendom today, in our culture. And so what is the biblical position? What would the Bible have us to do? We have, we have this juxtaposition, and it seems that we are products of the culture, but what we are called to be as Christians is 
biblical, not cultural. And I think that when we study the scriptures, we will find that God has ordained one holy day in which we are to observe on the first day of the week and we are to worship Him as He has prescribed. Christians have the liberty to participate in cultural holidays to the extent that their consciences allow. Understand, that, that, that is what I'm saying. I'm not telling you um, within reason what to do in your own private family lives when it comes to these holy days. But where we must draw a hard line in the sand is, where, is when man-made holy days begin to interfere with God's holy day. I saw advertised on, inter- on the internet, a, a reform, they advertised themselves as a reformed church in America. They had a big uh, Christmas celebration on Saturday because that's when Christmas uh, fell this year. And they canceled their Lord's Day services and their corporate worship services on Sunday. And I just ask, where in the Bible do we have such liberty to do that? I don't believe we do. I don't believe we do. So, we've answered the question, what does the Bible teach about holy days and corporate worship? Holy days and corporate worship. And if, if this is all you get, if you tune out from here on out, you've got the main point. But I want to just give some historical analysis uh, to perhaps help in your understanding of how things have developed to where we are. So, the second question is this. What are the historical origins and opinions of man-made holy days, specifically the Christmas holiday? What are the historical origins and opinions? And when I say opinions, I mean opinions within church history. Well, as we've seen, the New Testament shows Christians celebrating the first day of the week as a holy day. That is the only holy day that you will find with the inauguration of the New Covenant. And it might even shock you to know that for the first three centuries, that was essentially the only holy day that Christians did observe. There was no Christmas for the first three centuries of the New Testament church. And then in the fourth century, if you understand and have studied ancient and modern European history, you know that in the fourth century, the Roman Empire formally adopted Christianity, or at least a form of it. And Rome, uh, once they had formally adopted Christianity, they did so in a culture that was steeped in paganism, that was steeped in traditions of, of the ancient religions. You know, we're preaching through 1 Corinthians right now, and we see how Paul is struggling to deal with the remnants of this pagan culture. Well, Rome had the same issue in 313, that all of these cultural festivities that were anything but Christian, and they had to figure out what to do about all the pagan elements in the culture. Now, our text, let me call you back to Deuteronomy, our text tells us exactly what we are to do. It tells us uh, that we are to do away with the pagan elements of worship, and we are to institute biblical worship. Look at it, Deuteronomy 12, verses 30 and 31. Take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them. This is talking about the pagans. After that they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. 
For every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. So God is saying, do not worship me the way that the pagans worship their gods. Worship me the way I tell you to worship me. But instead of doing this, what Rome did was they, they did the exact opposite. They did what, what we would refer to as syncretism or assimilation. And they would take the pagan holy days and they would Christianize them. They would baptize them. They would rename them and they would institute them as a Christian holy day. And one of the days that this was done to was the winter solstice feast that happened around December 25th. Saturn was the sun god, and Rome simply said, well, instead of worshiping the sun god, we're now going to worship the son of God. And so they instituted, at first it was just called the Incarnation Feast, and then later in the Middle Ages it would become known as Christmas, following this normative principle of worship. They, they recognized that God did not command them to do so in His Word, but that didn't matter to them because God's Word was not their authority. And you can imagine from the 4th century to the 1500s, you can imagine how extensive this liturgical calendar got to be. But then came the Reformation. And with the Reformation, there was a revival of biblical worship, and Protestants and Baptists alike began to oppose the Roman Holy Days. Not only because of their pagan origins, and I only mention those origins for historical context, I really think they're subsidiary to the conversation and, and almost irrelevant, but because any time Rome tries to Christianize paganism, the heathen customs of the pagans always just coexist alongside the heathen customs of the Romanists. And this was true of Christmas. See, towards the Middle Ages, the centerpiece of Rome's Christmas celebration became the Mass. The Mass, which I believe is far worse than any of the other pagan customs. In fact, that's where the holiday literally gets its name. We say Christmas today, but for much of its history... It was known as the Christ Mass. And the Mass, which is an idolatrous and blasphemous re-crucifying of the Lord Jesus, is one of the most heinous, wicked, damnable institutions in the history of the world. And our particular Baptist forefathers understood this. They understood this close connection with Romanism. And it might actually surprise you. Some of the men that, that we so laud and, and, and cherish today were adamantly opposed to the Roman holy days and other man-made holy days. In fact, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this in 1817. says, We have no superstitious regard for times and seasons. Certainly we do not believe in the present ecclesiastical arrangement called Christmas. First, because we do not believe in the Mass at all, but abhor it, whether it be said or sung in Latin or in English. And secondly, because we find no scriptural warrant whatsoever for observing any day as the birthday of the Savior, and consequently its observance is superstition because it is, of not, it is not of divine authority. 
And that was not some weird cult leader in the 1800s. No, that was the most prominent Baptist preacher alive in England in the 1800s. Spurgeon was not an anomaly. This was the position of Reformed and particular Baptist Christians in his day. I understand that in 2021, now 2022, in uh, the southeastern United States, I understand not having a Christmas service makes you an outlier, uh, but particular is not just a cute little word that we have in the title of our church. It is who we are. That is what we believe. That is where our convictions lie because we believe that those men who were, were called the particular Baptists were doing nothing more than simply returning to the apostolic direction and teachings of the New Testament. And I will gladly take my lot with them over the, the modern contemporary Christianity that is pervasive in our day. And they rooted their convictions on holy days and corporate worship with the doctrine of the regulative principle. May I share with you from their confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 22, paragraph 1, they said this, The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And they go on in paragraph 7, as it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God so by his word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week which is called the Lord's day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. Now, I don't say this to be crude. I am very thankful that the Lord in recent years, in very recent years, seems to be reviving an interest in particular Baptist theology and seems to be bringing those of the younger generation around to these truths. But I just really pray that, that before we put on the 1689 hat, we actually read the Confession. And I actually want to implement it in our churches. It's so cool right now to be reformed in a lot of ways, but it, it means more than just a couple of catchphrases. This is what our forefathers believed. This is what they believed. Benjamin Keach would write a catechism that would be attached to the confession. And in question 56, he asks, what is forbidden in the second commandment? And the answer, the second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. And question 63, what is required in the fourth commandment? Answer, the fourth commandment requireth the keeping holy to God one whole day in seven to be a Sabbath unto himself. Now, why am I giving you this? Not because these men or even this confession is our authority. It is not. The scriptures are our authority. But I'm giving you this to show you that 
the things I'm saying to you tonight are nothing new. In fact, having nativity scenes in Baptist churches, that is something that is very new. Having, uh, foregoing the evening worship to have a skit or a play, that is something that is very new. And so our third question becomes then, how did the church of today arrive at its current position on man-made holy days? How did we get to where we are? I'm, you're saying, well, Spurgeon believed this. It's in our confession. If no Baptist churches hardly celebrated Christmas 150 years ago, then why do virtually all of them celebrate it today? Well, just think about that for a moment. And just consider the plethora of doctrines that Baptists have abandoned. That we have always believed from the times of the New Testament. I, I like to say to our Baptists who would want to deny the doctrines of grace and, and claim that they are in line with Baptist doctrine, I like to just ask them, show me any Baptist 150 years ago that denied the doctrines of grace. You'll, you might find one or two, but you will find that the overwhelming majority were particular Baptists. And we could go on and on. So just consider all of the practices, all of the doctrines that have been left, primarily left in the 1900s, bringing in the Christ Mass and other man-made holy days into our corporate worship is no different. These things began to enter into Baptist churches around the same time that other things did and other good things departed. But let me say to you, it is not progress. It is a return to the dark ages. And I say that with all compassion. So, in conclusion, please hear what I'm saying and don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that it's a sin to spend time with your family or give gifts or enjoy cultural festivities or even you know, decorate or whatever to the extent that your conscience allows. I believe each one of us will fall differently in their convictions on these things as personal matters. And my desire is not to be legalistic or browbeating. I am not saying that we are more pleasing to God or, or we are better Christians because we do this and other churches do that. My desire is not to somehow be holier than other churches. My only desire is for us to please God as a church in the way that we worship Him. And um, I don't preach this message tonight. I don't discuss these things tonight uh, to browbeat anyone or make anyone feel lesser than in the kingdom of God. No, my only real reason for doing this is to avoid confusion. I had to weigh it out. I had to say what would be most beneficial because I, I've had... I've had some questions. I've had some people asking, well, why are we not doing this? Or what is our position on this? And I figured that this would probably be the easiest way to just lay it all out. Um, but love your brothers and sisters. Love your brothers and sisters who perhaps disagree with you on these matters. And remember what is important in these matters. I'm not asking you tonight if you celebrate Christmas. That's not what I believe to be important. But what I will ask you, and what I will charge you with is do you love the Lord's Day and the God-ordained means of corporate worship? This is as far as I intend on going with this subject. Um, 
if you have personal convictional questions, I'll be happy to discuss those things. But I believe this is as far as the Bible gives us authority to mandate as what Christians must be doing. Uh, personal convictions are where the Lord will lead us as individual children. But may God be pleased as we seek to do nothing more than simply to please Him with the way that we worship Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name. We ask, Lord, that You would help us as a church to worship You in spirit and in truth in the ways that You have commanded. May You be pleased and honored and glorified with our worship tonight. May it be a sweet-smelling savor ascending up into heaven. And may Christ be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.